Hello, everybody. Welcome to Open Loops with Greg Bornstein, Conversations That Bend. This you are listening to is Podcast Pegasus, the time travel disclosure series. The first episode aired yesterday to get a little more context on the guest of the show. Go back and listen to episode one. Briefly, Andrew DiBashango the man with the most credible case of time travel in U.S. history, is joining me for a series of conversations about his time in the United States secret project that involved him traveling through time to the past and the future, multiple different timelines, and breaking down how he got there, how it worked, how the technology worked, what happened and what our destiny may be. In this episode, part two, we learn about the hazards of teleportation, the eight different modalities of time travel Andrew experienced, and a really shocking, and I'm warning you, the end of this episode gets graphic, uh, revelation about one of the projects that Andy won't even go into full details about because it was just that intense get ready to have your paradigm shattered it's all coming up on podcast pegasus a limited series disrupt your consciousness it's your unconscious mind's favorite late night talk show for the shamelessly fringe welcome to open loops with greg bornstein conversations that bend Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so you so you brought forward back to the point you brought forward uh, the evidence of the 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 patent for your father. You brought forward the Lincoln right. image. Do you think right. if your mission's accomplished that there is other stuff out there that beyond the stuff that you brought forward that could corroborate the time travel project? Yes. I mean, one of the reasons I, I uh, have brought up the grievous uh, accident where the boy Kevin lost his feet, because if Kevin can just do a public appearance and be shown to be have prosthetic legs and feet, yeah, or just prosthetic feet below the ankles, how would I know that from somebody I haven't seen since the fifth grade? That was 1971, 72. That was 50, almost 50 years ago next year. Okay, so all, all we have to do to prove my claims is get Kevin to come forward. And that's why I've always mentioned that accident on many of my interviews. Yeah. Because if Kevin comes forward, he will, he will prove the, the fact that my account that he lost his feet teleporting to New Mexico was not something I made up because there he is. He's in prosthetic feet, unfortunately. Yeah. And I really feel for the guy. I, I was fortunate to get through both of the the projects I was on without immediate injury, although I was injured quite seriously. Yeah. And I'm 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 dealing with those injuries. I mean I'm legally blind and I'm in complete kidney failure. And that was from the devices I was exposed to. And I was warned about that in two thousand three by by Jack Pruitt. I mean, bless bless his heart and the memory of his, his great son Glenn. 
Jack Pruitt met with me at his own volition to warn me in 2003 that all of the kids who had teleported in Project Pegasus were developing a disease that mimics diabetes in adulthood. And then a year later, I was diagnosed as being profoundly diabetic. That, that disease that mimics diabetes was treated with conventional medication, but they didn't work. They had no baseline to figure out what was going on. And my allopathic doctors wouldn't believe me. You know, you tell them you worked for the government and you were briefed on what you have, and it's not, it's not diabetes, it's a disease they mimic diabetes. And according to their training, they pull out the, uh, the psychiatric manual and try to right. figure out what, what mental illness you have. They don't, you know, I mean, and, and look, um, uh, who was that uh, Canadian um, ufologist? Ter- it was Terry uh, Friedman, wasn't it? Oh, uh, or Stanton? Stanton Friedman, right. Ter- Stanton Terry Friedman, right. Stanton Friedman revealed in the 1980s that the NSA had 84,000 agents. So imagine what the CIA and the and the and the uh, and the and the and DARPA and the rest of them have. Okay, and yet every doctor in this country has been trained. If you say I was injured working for DARPA or I was injured working for the CIA or I was injured working for the NSA, they are literally trained to pull out the desk manual for psychiatric illness. I forget what it's called. Okay, so that's what happened. I tried to warn them. Look, I have already been briefed by somebody who was on the the defense project I was on, that I have a disease that mimics diabetes. This is going to require some new thinking, some new medicine. And none of them cooperated with me. And as a result, in 2019, I had to have six operations on my eyes to save some semblance of my vision, which is all that I have. Okay, so I'm I'm doing something that's operating here on a multidimensional level. I've also become an advocate of complementary medicine. Not naturopathic, not allopathic, but both. When I started to lose my vision, I found that drinking saffron tea increased my visual acuity. Why didn't my ophthalmologist at my HMO tell me that? Why? Because they were allopaths. They, they, they're trained to make a statement that any, any supplement or any herbal uh, product is quackery, just like the naturopaths have been brainwashed to say that every allopath is a pill pusher for big pharma. We have to do better as a country. It's cost me. Yeah. My allopaths didn't believe me. My naturopaths didn't have the solutions they thought they had. So we're, we're in trouble medically. Yeah. Well, it also sounds like, I mean, I, you know, as much as I'm fantasizing here about how great it would be to uh, revamp this time travel program and actually have people start time traveling uh, once you figured out all the logistics and ethics and all that stuff. It sounds like these I, these devices aren't even safe. No, I, I've often said that mass time travel by mass people on mass timelines would create mass chaos. Imagine if people could go back in time to right before Microsoft or Apple or Amazon uh, had its initial public offering as a stock, all the money in the world would go to those stocks. So no, we can't, we cannot introduce time travel uh, of a multi-dimensional nature, quantum access on a mass level, but we can do smart things like introduce Tesla teleportation. Is it, is it safe? What is safe of these devices that you experienced? Well, when I was teleporting back in the early 70s, you know, late 60s, early 70s, 
most of it in 71, 72, but as early as 1968. By 1971, I was being given medication to limit the effects of the teleportation. It was a big pill, too. I had to learn how to swallow a pill about the size of a gumball. That's what my dad used to call it, your, 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 your gumball or your horse pill. He said, okay, Andy, you got to swallow your horse pill. Or, right. or another day, he'd say, okay, Andy, you got to swallow this gumball. That's when we were in uh, White Rock, New Mexico on the project. And then, of course, we would teleport home so as to arrive, you know, in New Jersey, so as to arrive on the day, you know, the afternoon of the morning we had left. So my mother and my siblings are, and nobody else ever learned that we were, we were in New Mexico for days, weeks, and, and, and months. But they were trying to make it safe then, which was next year will be 50 years ago. So if they haven't made Tesla teleportation safe metabolically, then no form of tra travel will ever be made safe. I mean, we lose every year as many Americans to the automobile as we lost during the 13 years of the Vietnam War. And yet nobody's protesting that. So yeah. I'm, I'm speaking out in different ways, sort of a multidimensional truth campaign to bring, to bring these truths to front and center, because these are things we have to confront. Is it still going on, teleportation? I think so, and I think what they did is they sequestered it within the executive branch. I mean, look at how you'll see a President Obama or a, a Secretary of State uh, Clinton or, or, or whoever arrive for a European summit absolutely not jet-lagged. I mean, when I would fly from Los Angeles to London, when I was a student at Cambridge, I'd have to spend a whole day just sleeping my, my jet lag off. Yeah. How do they get there and so fresh? I think what they're doing is they're, they're going from Andrews Air Force Base to, to, um, to another air base somewhere. They're entering a teleporter. They're teleporting across the planet and then being taken to an air base and then being shown getting off a plane. I mean, that that's a bit of a conspiracy theory that I'm entertaining. That's what I think they're doing. Because, I mean, the reason they were testing teleportation on us, because they were testing teleportation on bright, healthy uh, kids from stable, church-going families, because yeah. they wanted to use it for the children of our executive branch leaders, the president, the vice president, the secretary of state, etc. So... I think that's what they're doing. So if I had to guess whether uh, Malia and Sasha Obama teleported during their years as first daughters, I would say yes. But do I know that they did? No. I'm not in the government uh, apparatus anymore, and I haven't been since I left Project Mars in 1984. Yeah. So um, I, 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 can't, um, I can't say. But it, there's no reason why it doesn't still exist and why we still aren't going to Mars. We were getting people there, one, two, or three people there in 8 to 20 seconds, depending on where Mars was relative to Earth yeah, in the 80s. That is, the Mars thing is a whole not, okay, we're going to get to the Mars thing. That's a whole whew, fascinating thing with shocking, shocking reveals that you've told me, at least shocking to me. Project Pegasus for a second. I want to get back to it. Are you able to break down, because you mentioned before, Greg, I've gone through, uh, experience eight different forms of time travel. Right. Uh, are right. you able to break down those just so we're aware of the technology that you experience firsthand? Yeah. Now, bear in mind, this is all from memory because I'm not legally cited anymore, so I can't refer to my book or my notes. But the eight modalities of time travel were... Um, 
remote viewing, which is psychic time travel. That's seeing things at a distance in real time. But it is quantum access, right? Because you're, you're trying to see what, you know, Leonid Brezhnev is doing in the Kremlin, right? Yeah. Um, and that was supplementing... Um, remote viewing was being used to supplement chronovision, but let's not get to that yet. So remote viewing. Then they were spinning us to induce out-of-body experiences. I've described that as a form of astral time travel. Right. Then there, there was the Montauk chair, which was a form of physio-astral time travel where you'd sit in this chair, but then it would be used to, to send you to a moment in your own subjective future. Uh, then there was the chronovisor, which was a form of holographic time travel. But I, I call it a form of physio-holographic time travel because if we were in for more than 15 minutes in that time and place, a density effect occurred by which we were there physically. So the chronovisor would sometimes send us to physical time travel experiences, sometimes not. And again, if we stood outside the hologram, it was just a looking glass into the past or future. Then there were physical forms of time travel, the Tesla teleporter, the Stargate, which was just a, te a large Tesla teleporter about the size of an Olympic basketball court, right. the, the, the um, plasma confinement chamber, which was a form of physical time travel, and the aeronautical repositioning chamber, which was a form of physical time travel. So I was involved in, in four indisputably physical forms of time travel. So how could I not have been injured? And yeah. indeed I was. That is, uh, I mean, Andy, this is just uh, so remarkable that this technology existed. I've heard some of the, you know, there's a, there's a Facebook group um, that has your name on it, Project Pegasus. People can check it out out there if they're interested, where there was a post probably from a couple of years ago or maybe five or six years ago where you uh, broke down where the technology came from. It was generated. Uh, of It's just remarkable to me that that it was somehow these things were discovered. I know the Montauk chair, didn't it come from, it came from uh, an ET, is that correct? Yeah. Now, by, by the way, let me just preface those eight modalities of time travel by lopping off the aeronautical repositioning chamber, which I just talk about in my book about Mars, because that's all I did in it. Yeah. And the chronovisor had a third and a fourth dimensional chronovisor. We were either there as superluminal superimpositions, like ghosts are in our environment, or we were physically there. So that's how the eight modalities are described in my in my book about Project Pegasus. Uh -huh. Now, now, um, you you asked a, a a very good question about the, this this one that you just asked me about, uh, or all your questions, but th this one about the Montauk chair. Yeah, yes, the Montauk chair was the pilot seat aboard a UFO, a, a down saucer, that the alien pilot, you know, the extraterrestrial. I don't like the phrase alien. Yeah. Or even the greys, because the greys sounds racist. I, I like the phrase ET or extraterrestrial. You know, we're interterrestrials and they're extraterrestrials, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And we're very much alike. Uh, and I'm not afraid of them. And I hope to meet them again. I met them a lot when I was quite young. But anyway, um, the, the pilot aboard that extraterrestrial craft would know where they were going and be able to avoid asteroids and space dust and space junk and things that could damage their craft. 
Now, when we realized that that's what they were doing, we placed that in a laboratory setting where somebody could sit in the chair and visit their own future. And that's, that's, that was the derivation of the Montauk chair. Wow. Is it even possible that somebody could discover this technology themselves these days? I mean, how in the world would – I know there's a little bit of Tesla – I know there's, you mentioned, uh, you know, Ernetti and uh, Fermi, and, and where are the minds that are building technology, time travel technology today? Why was this able to happen back then at the certain period of time? And where's the disconnect between back then and what people are doing now with so much technology advancing in the world? Well, it, it was advancing, and then a lot of these projects were taken secret. That's why the it seems like it's ahead of its time. It, it still went on after it was, it went secret. But let me just say that, you know, I was a child of the 1960s, Greg, and, and I grew up eating Cracker Jack. Okay. And there was always a prize in the Cracker Jack box, right? Yeah. And that's what you always looked for as a kid. It was so special to find that prize. Okay. What I decided to do when I, when I came forward is I decided to insert a little time travel prize in the corpus of my work. Because I knew that for many people, that was just going to be Cracker Jack. They were just going to enjoy chewing on it. Oh, here's a guy who says he time traveled. I think I'll listen to this guy. I wonder if I believe him. And in the process of that sort of obligatory skepticism, I was even accused of atrocities, despite the fact that I have lived a blameless life. I have lived a devoutly Catholic, Christic life. Okay? I have really watched my deportment in life, and I've served the country. But because of this obligatory skepticism, sometimes when you share the truth with the paranoid, you provoke the paranoid. And that has only intensified in our time. But I actually consciously left a little Cracker Jack prize in the net corpus of my work. Because again, I knew that a lot of people were just going to enjoy it as entertainment and not realize that it was educative and even enlightenment oriented. So what I did was I began spreading the information about how to create a time travel device. And I don't mean just some simple Montauk chair or something. I mean a serious time travel device. I keep on repeating that the hologram in the chronovisor was achieved by putting an electromagnetic signal through an eight-sided bismuth crystal. That's literally the revelation of the the sum and substance of a, of, a, of a time travel device that I have now been revealing on radio since 2008, 12 years. Anybody listening simply had to play around with EM signals and eight-sided bismuth crystals until a hologram, you know, popped out on their desk, on their work table. So in answer to your question, you know, where is this technology being developed I've actually put the derivation of one of the devices in the public domain so that anybody could create a chronovisor. Oh my gosh. That now is... I warned them if they, that if they achieve that, doing that scientifically or technically, yeah. they have to be ready for a visit from Homeland Security because they'll be shut down right away. But at least they'll know that I've been telling the truth and that such a device is possible. Yeah. Yeah. Is this, uh, I, I've asked you about this before, but now there, there is a lot of talk about, uh, and not necessarily from credible resources, uh, in my opinion, because I don't know, something just seems off about, you know, and I'll name him David Wilcock. 
this guy, big name guy out there who's associated with someone I know uh, you've been critical with before with regards to his Mars missions. Um, but David Wilcock talks about Project Looking Glass and says even QAnon, this Trump conspiracy, they they brought Project Looking Glass into it. And then Michael Sala, who uh, is very into exopolitics and stuff like that, uh, talks about it as well. Uh, he did an article on you, too. Um, it, yeah, Project Looking Glass. It sounds like the chronovisor. It sounds like what is that still active? What What is going on with this? current project looking glass that is supposedly going to be disclosed any day now let's let, let's go back a, a bit um i've never met david we've traveled in the same circles i've lauded him as a bright individual and a an excellent writer yeah but he's been trying to make sense of things that have happened to other people like myself and Corey good yeah and what, what what's been happening it's so hard to kind of deconstruct this, but what's been happening is that experiencers and those writing about experiences have just tried to make sense of what's happened. You mentioned Dr. Michael Sala. He's a good friend of mine. He's a wonderful person. Yeah. He has my complete trust. He's a man of high intelligence, character, and dignity and compassion. Yeah. Okay. I have stopped the process of analyzing anybody else in the truth movement because everything's gotten mixed up because we all got away from discerning whether somebody's an experiencer and then listening to what they're saying. For example, when the meme Project Looking Glass was sort of inaugurated by Carrie Cassidy, who I've loaded as a brilliant journalist, right, uh, and, sh- and, and promoted by David Wilcock, who, who confirmed that I was a, a, an actual Mars experiencer when... Um, Shadow Operations was made with Bill and Carrie of Project Camelot for True TV. You know, there's sort of like this constant crossfire where sometimes people in the movement are affirming something you say, and sometimes they're denouncing you for atrocities that you didn't commit. You know, it's all, it's all over the place. The, what we have to do is we have to bring together the truth movement. Now, I have done some shows, some, some interviews, um, sharing my opinion about some of the Mars claimants who I know are not telling the truth. Yeah. And certainly, as I, just as I've shared the, the accounts of those who I know serve in the program. Um, so the bottom, the bottom line is, if you get a meme like Project Looking Glass from, let's say, Kerry Cassidy or David Wilcock, who are certainly very bright, vigorous investigators you have to say well how did andy use looking glass didn't he say that when you stood outside the chronovisor in project pegasus he was told by jack pruitt that it was a looking glass you see right what's happened is a set of a set of true memes a set of totally false memes and a set of confused memes has crowded the public domain out of these issues. And the reason for that is not the people working in the field. I love my colleagues in this field. I'm excited to be living at a time when I can have so many brilliant colleagues like the people I just mentioned. Yeah. Dr. Sala and, and David Wilcock and Carrie Cassidy and Alfred Lambermont Weber and Dr. Brooks Agnew and, and, and yourself. You know, there, There's literally hundreds of intelligent, enlightened minds trying to bring the truth out. The problem is 
one thing that has screwed up this whole field, and that is official state secrecy magnified by the effects of insecure people sharing science fiction. In other words, just as we came forward to tell the truth about black projects in which remarkable things were done, a, a, a second wave of claimants made up science fiction stories about their experiences. And that's where we are. So, but I, you know, I've, I've, I've stated recently that I do not want to become the Philip class of the truth movement. I'm not going to comment except in positive terms about anybody in the field. But I do know some people who have, who have been lying. And yeah. I think others are, are waking up to that fact as well. Uh, I know that David has just gotten married. I, I wish him uh, all the best with his new bride, um, Eliza. And um, I know he's moved to Sedona, Arizona, and I wish him the best there. I, I and my fiance uh, are planning to move to Arizona as well. So I think Arizona is going to kind of become a place where we can begin to, to host, hopefully, a set of conferences that will try to reconcile everything that's been presented over the last 20 years or so. That'd be the, true, the true memes, the false memes, and the in-between memes. That's really what we need at this point. And I, I hope to be talking to David soon about that. Yeah. So that that's kind of where we're at, you know. Yeah, he also talks about this Pete Peterson guy. I mean, I know he likes Corey Good, but Pete Peterson is the name of the guy that he drummed up. As uh, I, I think uh, Pete has appeared on Cosmic Disclosure, or they, one of the shows David did, and he talked a lot about Looking Glass. Do you know him at all? I don't. I don't know Pete Peterson. I've heard of him, and I know that David has talked about him. But you know, if you took any of those individuals, there'd be a mix of, adver- you know, reporting that was spot on and reporting that wasn't spot on. And that's why I've kind of been lucky to be able to just share my experiences. You know, as Mark Twain said, if you if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything, right? Yeah. So that's what I've been doing. So I've been more fortunate than the writers who have tackled the experiences of experiencers because I've just been able to share what I know, what I did, and then try to figure out who's telling the truth and who's lying. But that was never my responsibility, and I've kind of abandoning that that uh, that responsibility progressively yeah but i mean if you if, if you it, it, well let me just use an example though if if you conclude that david erred by reporting on Corey good david also affirmed my mars material on shadow operations and that's spot on so that's what's been going on same thing with dr sala he's lauded me in recent speeches but there was a time where he didn't believe me. And then he realized, oh, my God, Andy is telling the truth. And he was able to affirm a connection between Dr. Harold M. Agnew and the term, the search term, Project Pegasus. How would somebody not in physics who grew up in New Jersey during those years even know that, right? So this is what's been going on in the, in the tremendous crossfire in our field, where somebody as brilliant as Dr. Sala could not believe me and then go, you know, slap himself on the forehead and go, oh, my God, Andy was telling the truth all along. So yeah. we're still emerging. The truth is still emerging. But the key thing is, I think, what I just mentioned, which is hopefully we can make Arizona the place, because I think it's the most progressive state in the country. Yeah. And there's been some of the most vital uh, conference activity there. I'm going to be there. Uh, um, Randy Kramer's going to be there. 
Um, Scott Maxwell is there. David Wilcock. Uh, Corey is now up in Colorado, which is close to Arizona. So I'm going to try to get as many people as possible in the field to move to Arizona. And we'll do a series of conferences that will almost be like teach-ins to try to reconcile the different accounts. I do not believe, for example, that everything that Corey Good said was not true. I think he is an experiencer whose work was embellished in the telling. That's happened to me. I've had to go on when I could still read. I'd go online and think, I didn't say that. I, I never claimed that. And I have to send an email to somebody or post something on somebody's Facebook site saying, you're talking about something I never said because I never did it. <laughs> you know, so we really have to adhere to the truth. And by the way, speaking the truth is not just a matter of not lying. It also is a matter of not saying unsubstantiated things about innocent people. Mm. That's also bearing false witness. Right. In the in the philosophy of the Ten Commandments. And that's another thing we have to become dedicated to. We're we're in a we're in a crisis of false allegation in American society. It's been going on for about twenty five years, but currently it has reached a fevered pitch. Right at the time that we need to be coming together as fellow Americans to save our country from serious problems. So let's dedicate ourselves to the truth, not just in terms of telling our own truth but not repeating absolute made-up nonsense about others. Like intentionally lying about somebody, that is bearing false witness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you hear something and, they're, and, they're, and repeat it, saying, well, I heard that so-and-so is da-da-da. I mean, people are saying, I'm a Satanist. I'm not a Satanist, I'm a Christian. I have been my entire life. Yeah. As a Roman Catholic, I vowed in open church with the lips of my mouth that I was rejecting Satan and all of his handiwork, okay? I have been attacked by Satanists physically, including when I was a student at Cambridge. I've done research into them as a result. I know who some of them are, okay? And I know some of the grievous practices of some of them because of a third classified defense project that I served on. But just remember that just because we have Internet access that doesn't give us carte blanche to hear something and thereby repeat it without ever validating it. And that's what's going on big time. Yeah. I think in America right now, you know, it was, it was about 20 years ago when general Colin Powell said, we'd have a great future as a country. If we could just get Americans to get along with each other. Now it's at the point where most of the time I place a phone call, I'm not getting a call back because everything has fallen apart. And that's why I salute individuals like yourself who are keeping our country going by keeping these channels open on radio. That's a start. That's an important start. But we have to dedicate ourselves to the truth and dedicate ourselves to not repeating scuttlebutt that we've just heard about somebody else because some wackadoodle said it. Yeah. Hey, you I've know heard what's... so many stories. Oh, yeah. sorry. I, I was going to say this, uh, you know, you mentioned three classified project and you said there was the third one, the NSA one that you don't like talking about. Out of curiosity, is anybody else talking about that? If, if um, I'm, I'm just putting pieces together that you mentioned Satanism and that's another classified project. And I know that doesn't have to do with Mars. That third one that you don't like talking about is somebody else out there talking about 
the the matters related to that third classified project? I don't I don't think directly, but let me just say that President Reagan was a great man. He was a believer. He loved this country and he went to war against the cabal. That is And that's so all I'd like to say. That's so interesting. Yeah, the the, the, the information that, that's coming out now about the cabal and by the way, it wasn't being called the cabal, it was being called the Illuminati. It wasn't being called the cabal, Satanists, the Freemasons, um, reptilians. It was being called the Illuminati. Wow. And I, I can also reveal something I've revealed in other shows to verify the existence of the quote-unquote cabal, as it's called today, but as it was called Illuminati in those days. I was shown a picture of a four-year-old boy child who had been barbecued. Oh. He literally had an apple in his mouth. So if I'm asked, Andy, do you believe these stories that there are wicked people in the world who are sacrificing children or even cannibalizing fellow human beings, including children? I am committed to the truth, and I have to say, yes, I saw the evidence of that. Wow. The individual who showed me the evidence of that was a captain in the NSA who was detailed as a captain in the U.S. Army. In the same way that when I went to Mars, I was detailed as a lieutenant in the Navy under a different name. But my birth name was listed over at the Naval Investigative Service. So, yes, there are wicked people in the world who do wicked, sick things. Yeah. And it's very important that we're now focusing on that. But if, if somebody gets a Patreon site or a YouTube site or a Facebook site and starts listing the name of a hundred famous people who have been accused, tried, and executed, you know, secretly with no due process and no public participation, I don't think that's going on. I think there's been very little action against the worst of the worst. In fact, I think it's possible that George H.W. Bush shut down the program that uh, President Reagan uh, started that, that I had served in. So I'm not, and, and many learned people I've talked to who have, who have analyzed these accounts that, oh, we're finally going after the cabal, we're not buying it. In fact, we think the cabal is not being prosecuted. Yeah. So all that wicked stuff that you've heard about is going on, but it is not a new phenomenon. In fact, there's evidence that it's a centuries-old phenomenon by certain groups. Yeah, I'm actually. But for, uh, for having risked my life, for having risked my life to serve President Reagan in his war against such groups, is it really fair to accuse me of similar atrocities? Of course not. Oh, definitely not. Any any more than it was, it would be fair to to, to say that Babe Ruth was a was a shitty baseball hitter. You know? Yeah. Pardon, pardon my French, but I mean, come on there's also the phenomenon of gaslighting that if those who have served against a certain evil begin speaking about serving against that evil, that evil comes after them and gaslights them and accuses them of their evil in either projection or literally tactical false allegation. So we need to be sophisticated in our analysis. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I think it's really hard right now, Andy, especially with, uh, you know, QAnon tapping into, I mean, the alt-right and the pro-Trumpers, and I, I, I know that uh, for some reason, I th and I think this kind of goes to your point earlier about time travel accounts, anti-cabal and military-industrial complex and deep state have somehow become an ideological battle that the right wing 
has uh, the the alt right wing has kind of taken over and it doesn't seem like it really helps bring the truth to the forefront when it just becomes about well supposedly Donald Trump was going to be taking them down in addition to official state secrecy there's a more profound problem that's leading to all this confusion and that is an epistemological crisis epistemology is the theory of the study of knowledge yeah now in epistemology high strangeness connotes low credibility and low strangeness can connote high credibility but neither of those are axiomatic in other words my account of time traveling is true but it's more strange than let's say for example randy kramer's story of going to mars which i've shown is false a made-up story yeah an interesting story but a you know a good story a good science fiction story but made up now everybody would say well it's obviously less strange that randy saying he went to mars just like andy and the others are but it, it, it certainly therefore is more credible than andy's story that he time traveled no that's not true that's not true in other words when we examine what we call the paranormal we're actually examining what's on the threshold of science hmm. and something that is totally far out can be true and something easy to believe can be false like for example I remember a number of my past lives. If somebody stipulates that past lives don't exist, just like Cliff High stipulates that time travel doesn't exist, they can say, Andy, you can't be remembering your past lives, or Andy, you couldn't have time traveled. Okay, yeah. but, but what they're doing in that analysis is they're either addressing something they don't have knowledge of, or they're not just giving low credibility to that with high strangeness, okay? They're saying it's not true. And that's a fallacy that belabors our society and at the highest levels. I mean, it was for that reason that my, according to Bill Tompkins, William Tompkins, um, my father convened a committee, a commission in the intel community to convince the rest of the intel community that we were deriving information for the intel community via quantum access because they didn't believe that time travel was had been achieved, was possible. You see? Yeah. So this this is the dilemma we're in, where things can that seem more strange can be true, and things that seem far more pedestrian could have just been made up. That's the nature of reality. That's why I haven't given up on Corey Good. I've examined Corey's claims, and I'm starting to lean towards the fact that he's a legitimate experiencer whose work got commercially developed mm. and thereby embellished. And that happens. I mean, that may have been a smart business decision. I didn't really approach my work from a commercial perspective like that. That's the other thing that makes you legitimate, in my eyes at least, or much more credible. Where, where's the money well, for this? In, Who's paying you for doing this interview or the hundreds of <laughs> interviews you've done? Where, you know, a lot of people always go, well, look at the money. I mean, you tell a good story, you're going to get some good money. Is there no, a... No, not true. Not true. I have, I've been paid nothing for almost all of my, well, all of my radio interviews and most of my TV interviews. I was paid for the one on the new in search of, and I was paid for some of my lectures and that's it. Yeah. So I was able to sustain myself financially by practicing law, which until I lost a good part of my vision back in 2017, 2018, I was doing. 
Did any of your uh, um, clients, uh, people you were representing, know about this side of your work? Yes, and they admired it. And I even had fellow lawyers open the uh, courtroom doors for me after I did the Jesse Ventura show. So, <laughs> wow. Uh, conspiracy theory. So, no, it had no impact on my on my career because I had reached the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Washington. I'd won virtually all my cases. I was going to say lawyers so my are fellow tough. lawyers. They are tough to BS with stuff. So I'm impressed that lawyers bought that uh, a story that does seem so quote unquote strange. Well, we're both trained and have uh, buckets and buckets of experience listening to people's claims and and their accounts, and we're actually trained how to ask them questions, you know, to really listen actively and then ask them questions to either prove or disprove their testimony. And I never had a single lawyer do anything but congratulate me about my my truth campaign. In fact, J.J. Sandlin, the legendary trial lawyer, um, who I just think the world of, I mean, somebody who did basically $20 million cases when he was still practicing, J.J. said that I was one of the most brilliant lawyers in America. And I said, J.J., you're just giving me the highest compliment. Why, why, why do you say that? And he said, because you proved your case, uh, your time travel case in the court of public opinion. He was actually listening to my radio interviews on his uh, tape deck in his car when he was going between court appointments that he had. So that was that was pretty thrilling. That was a real um, a real high moment in my truth campaign when a lawyer like J.J. Sandlin would would say that. So no, it, it, I, I did have a couple lawyers who I took my case to say, I don't know whether I believe you or don't believe you, but I can't take your case because it's going to be too hard to prove. But see, that yeah. was a juridical judgment of the viability of the lawsuit, not a statement by them that, Hey, we think you should see a psychiatrist and stop out from the law until you're treated. You know, none of them took that approach. That was part two of Podcast Pegasus, the time travel disclosure series on Open Loops with Greg Bornstein Conversations That Bend. Andrew DiBashago filling up this week with such great content. I want to thank him so much. In tomorrow's episode, part three, You'll hear Andy's thoughts on some of the other big time travel names of the community. Elon Musk, Ron Mallet. You're going to hear the whole thing about Montauk and the Philadelphia experiment. And you'll even hear me ask Andy, dude, are you just crazy? Take care. It's going to be a fun time. <laughs>